1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Uh, my name is Tracy Morgan, your devoted host, and today we're very pleased to have with us Dr. Jillian Isaacs-Russell, who's written a book uh, called Screen Relations, The Limits of Computer-Mediated Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy, published by Karnak in 2015. Uh, welcome, Dr. Isaacs-Russell.
0: Thank you so much for having me with you Tracy, it's a pleasure to speak with you.
1: Yeah. it's um, And here we are um, in a book that contends with Skype <laughs> and Skype therapy. And um, I just want everyone to know that uh, Dr. Isaacs Russell and I are speaking by Skype without the video because I find it way too disorienting and hard to listen um, to uh, interviewees um, if I'm looking at them by Skype because I'm unable to make eye contact with them, but I can see them. It's, uh, <laughs> so so that, that's where we, we begin. Everyone that um, I interview uh, on the show, I, I ask them a very simple question, which I'd like to ask you. What um, prompted the writing of this book?
0: Right. Well, the inspiration for the research prior to the book and the book that followed came from my own personal experience mm-hmm. So my own use of screen relations-based treatment led me to ask questions like, can a highly effective therapeutic process occur without physical co-presence? And this happened um, because in 2008, I wound down a, a practice of over two decades and moved from the U.K. to the Black Hills of South Dakota. Well. and Yes, which is a big move in all sorts of ways. Um, and, and because my stay there was only temporary, I didn't intend to start a practice. And, and instead, I decided I was going to continue to work on some pieces of speculative fiction that I'd begun in the U.K., um, where I had a psychoanalyst as the protagonist, Um, And and speculative fiction begins with the question, what if? And, of course, my what ifs at that point grew from my own grappling with separation from family and friends and home territory. So I was asking things like, what if humankind existed, spread over remote planets, living in social and cultural isolation, but with advanced technology for instantaneous communication? Or, Or what if an Envoy on a remote planet where psychotherapy was incomprehensible or prohibited needed help from a therapist on the home planet. So I did did lots of research, which led me through the history of the Nazi regime in relation to psychoanalysis, to the banning of psychoanalysis in in the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. and then you know, in one of those serendipitous art life connections, I came upon an intriguing article about Kappa, which is the China American. Psychoanalytic Alliance. And that is a non-profit organization which was formed to meet the needs of Chinese mental health professionals who wanted to learn more about psychoanalytic psychotherapy. And it proceeded by treating, teaching and supervising these professionals all from the West, all on platforms like Skype. And in this article, they were calling for Western volunteers. And they described Skype as very easy. This was in comparatively early days of Skype, um, that the audio was as good as in the same room and that the video was crystal clear. And most importantly, it described the treatment as developing exactly as does traditional treatment, that it was indistinguishable. Well, for me... (laughs) The prospect of being able to teach and treat enthusiastic students of a completely different culture from my own very remote location was highly intriguing. Um, and, and I really felt that Skype would solve my dilemma of distance and separation and um, allow me to transcend space and time mm. because the only instruments I would need were myself and my computer. So I downloaded the Skype software and I began my exploration of technologically mediated communication. And at the same time, I also began what finally amounted to about three years of meetings with peers who also did technologically mediated treatments in China and elsewhere. And these meetings also occurred on the screen using Skype. Well, as our meetings progressed, instead of talking about the East-West cultural challenges, which we thought we would be doing, we actually became increasingly aware of the effects of the technology itself on our treatments. Um, as you probably know, if you're, you you use Skype with any regularity, the audio and video is not normally lifelike and often not crystal clear. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got poor sound. It often has grainy visuals and frequent interruptions and disconnections. So we really became old hands at calling back several times in sessions, and and we learned to turn off the video to increase the bandwidth by just using audio. Then we began to notice anomalies in our behavior. Um, We had curious lapses. It was really easy to forget the times of sessions and of our peer group meeting. Um, It seemed very easy to forget the content of sessions, which was very uncharacteristic for practitioners who were extremely experienced. Um, we were much more casual, more likely to bring a cup of tea or a glass of water into a session. We dressed more casually. Um, we did more talking about comparative times and weather and more talking in general. We found silences weren't easy and we felt less in touch. We we missed being bodies together, not just with our patients, but with our peer group as well. Mm-hmm. So the colleagues who'd begun remote treatments enthusiastically lost their initial energy. And we asked, how could it be that we had just assumed that co-present treatment would transport seamlessly into technologically-mediated treatment? So I set out to clarify what happens when we practice technologically-mediated treatment. And, and, and in fact, what I encountered was an emerging reality which was far more fascinating than any speculative fiction I could imagine. Um, I discovered we're living and practicing in a world of speculative nonfiction. Uh, events in the present-day world have led to a series of what-ifs, which I've tried to address, that need urgent clarification in the here and now. So since 2012, I've been doing hundreds of hours of ethnographic interviews of clinicians and patients about their experiences with technologically mediated treatment, And I've examined the technologies of mediated communication, how they affect our relationships, how they change not only what we do, but who we are. And I found that eliminating being bodies together largely confines the therapeutic process to what I would call states of mind rather than states of being. And it's only when one can dwell in a state of being that one can take part in the therapeutic process. Of communicating with oneself and another. Mm-hmm. So when we add technology to the psychoanalytic mix and we want to do it responsibly, we need to ask the people who've worked in communication studies, computer science, and technology, you know, long before we entered the mediated scene, right. what impact this addition has had on the nature of close relationships.
1: Mm-hmm. When reading the book, um, I was, I found myself very aware of um, an old, sort of an old question now uh, of Andre Green's uh, is sexuality and psychoanalysis at the same time as I was taking up your question, um, which is how did analysts sort of think that we could just seamlessly move from two bodies in the room to you know the, the use of the screen? And I began to wonder as I was reading your book that question of Green's um, stayed with me. And I thought, so are analysts at this particular moment um, since we have maybe diminished the impact of sexuality in the body in uh, much of psychoanalysis. I wonder if that helped us to just further disembody the experience. Uh, hmm. Do you have any thoughts about that?
0: Well, I, you know, I think that it's it's very historic. Um, you, you know, Freud wrote in a letter to Fleece, uh, I, I can't quote this exactly, but that he simply didn't know how to go on um, theoretically, Um and therapeutically uh, taking into consideration uh, the physicality, taking into consideration the organism rather than just the psychology. And he said he didn't know how to begin and he didn't actually, he couldn't fathom why he couldn't do it. (laughs) And so, you know, I think there is there is perhaps a, a history, a heritage of this that started from Freud's feeling baffled about what quite to do with the body and its, and its part in, in psychoanalysis. And I think for probably from then on, the body has been somewhat sidelined. Certainly in my own training, mm-hmm. it was not emphasized. And what I learned about the body and the body's place in the consulting room, I learned in, the research, in doing the research for this book mm-hmm. very late on.
1: Interesting, right? It's it's. Uh, I mean, you really bring the body, the ways in which we communicate um, with our bodies um, that we really take for granted. It's not even something we think about. Our bodies are communicating something somehow to another person who's in our presence um, all the time. And I really appreciated the return of a book that seems to be about technology. Is also really a book. About the importance of the body. Um, it could have had a different, I don't know what another title would have been, but it's really the importance of the body in, in analytic work. I interviewed a while back, a couple years ago, um, Susie Orbach, and she's, uh, I'm, I'm sure, a colleague of yours from, from England. And she um, she says something more or less like that the body uh, in contemporary culture is, uh, is no longer a platform on which and through which one's life is lived. The body is attacked by eating derangements, surgeries, the the quest for perfectibility. And I was thinking about how the screen um, and screen relations um, to some degree make the body um, superfluous and uh, and there's a desire for, for simulacra but you said you write bodies cannot be left out of the equation though it continues to interest me and these are your words that human beings persist in wishing to do so mm. further thoughts very profound statement i thought of yours <laughs> i'm
0: i think there is there's always been this fantasy to rise above the limitations of the body Right. and that the exciting ability to be able to communicate and now with computers in our pockets anytime anywhere without having to move our bodies somehow grants that 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 wish that we don't have limitations that we aren't tethered right. to the earth or inside ourselves mm-hmm. so so that's 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 one way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. I mean, I, you think about it, Renee Spitz says that perception begins with the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, if you, if you throw that into the mix, and we think that by seeing and, you know, and being on and looking at each other on the screen, um, that we're perceiving everything. But, you know, how do we begin to perceive our environment as infants with our mouths? That's where how we begin to take it in. So obviously, right then and there, we see the importance of the body for um, for for perception. So uh, here's a question for you. I think the book seems to it privileges. I think uh, very much so a Winnicottian approach um, mm-hmm. to clinical work, and you know, you write about the secure environment, containment, reliable presence. Um, you know things that are uh, are known um, sort of a, uh, components of a Winnicottian-based treatment. But I, I found myself uh, wanting to ask you this. Uh, do you think an analytic approach that's more focused on language, reading the patient and the patient's language as more of a text of, you mm-hmm. know, understanding the patient's unconscious through their slips of the tongue, et cetera, would the screen be do just as well?
0: I think that it could, the use of the screen could feel more egosyntonic for someone who was largely focused on language. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is that the research being done um, recently, more recently, um, about what actually does happen in communication between people um, puts language there in the mix, but also puts what happens between the lines um, very, very emphatically there as well. So at the risk of sounding quite controversial, <laughs> I, I, I think I might question someone who simply felt they just worked with language in any case. I mean, you know, the neuroscience has had a paradigm shift right. in the last years from this Cartesian mind-body dualism Uh, when the body is considered peripheral to our understanding of the mind. And and all the new research suggests that we think not just with our brains, but with our bodies. Um, Damasio said that our our minds are embodied in in the full sense of the word, not just embrained. Mm -hmm. And so what goes on in the brain depends on what's going on in the body as a whole and how that body specifically is situated in its environment. So, so we don't just have states of mind and we don't just use this reflective uh, verbal position with language. Everything that we do is part of a broader system that critically involves our perception and our action. As I said earlier, our states of being. Mm-hmm. So, Whereas language is, is terribly important, if we look at the work of people like Alan Shore mm-hmm. or the um, Boston Change Process Study Group, uh, you know, what comes up there is the really the communication that goes on in psychobiological terms in microseconds, um, not just the language.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's one of the big things that we're missing when we work in two
1: dimensions, in two different environments um, on the screen. Right, right. I was uh, thinking about, you know, I, I have patients that are on the phone. I'm more right, a phone person than a Skype mm-hmm. person um, in that way. But some, some of those patients, they started off with me in person and then they moved and then they come back into town every so often. And so I still get to see them, mm. right? which is what I prefer. In fact, any time a patient moves away, I ask if they're willing to fly in once a week. Mm -hmm. (laughs) no matter no matter where they move (laughs) you're in switzerland can you fly can you fly back in once a week so i can see you uh and we can continue the other sessions uh, on the phone i haven't gotten anyone to to do that from switzerland (laughs) but 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 the thing that that crossed my mind was you know there's different kinds of patients right as we know there's some patients who really i had you know we've had probably both of us patients who begin with us on the phone you know in a mediated or via the screen and that's what they that's what they prefer but but when you're working with let's say a, a pre edible patient a more um primitive regress patient um who communicates symbolically um i i had a it was painful to think about uh in your book put it in stark relief that how are we able to help that that patient and work with that patient via skype i mean what what are your what are your thoughts you know rather than the more sort of you know neurotic patient the more the more regressed patient i mean what no
0: i i you know i i think if you'd asked me this some months ago i would have trod very carefully and said well it depends but actually my feeling is that it's very very difficult if someone is in that position And um, and I think that that is because you you said I think in Winnicottian terms it's terribly important Mm -hmm. that the object to whom that person hopes to relate eventually you and to use becomes real in the sense of being part of a shared reality. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Winnicott would say that the development of the capacity to use an object and feel that that object is a separate object. Um, it, it is part of the maturation of the individual in the good-enough facilitating environment. And these people need to eventually, hopefully, have the experience that the object is perceived as outside of the subject's omnipotent control. Right, right. And this, this is impossible if uh, an analysis or therapy is confined to the screen.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. You can't really destroy um, an analyst in effigy, right? It's, no, you can't, you that's can't, right. Knowing that the analyst survives the destruction um, in the room without running out of the room can be uh, can be key. Actually, you quote Winnicott throughout the book, but there's one quote in particular that I wanted to, to read. I'm not even sure what this Comes from, but it's um, talking about the facilitating environment, um, and this is in your chapter on what happens in the consulting room. Winnicott writes, "This work was to be done in a room, not a passage. A room that was quiet and not liable to sudden, unpredictable sounds, yet not dead quiet and not free from ordinary house noises. The room would be lit properly, not by a light staring staring in the face, and not by a variable light." The room would certainly not be dark, and it would be comfortably warm. He's so funny. The patient would be lying on a couch. That is to say, comfortable if able to be comfortable, and probably a rug and some water would be available. Okay, so you're doing a Skype session with a patient. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've had a patient at the nail salon, right? You know?
0: Someone in the Atlantic wrote about uh, doing a session with a patient who'd popped their iPhone up on the car dashboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, what you're talking about is the fact that in two different environments, the patient provides the patient's environment, which is a tremendous departure from what we know is therapeutic for for a patient, which is, as Balance says, creating a proper atmosphere for the patient by the analyst. Mm-hmm. And this is something that can't be ensured. Uh, And, yes, the stories are are extreme and they sound like, oh, well, gosh, that that doesn't happen very much. But it does because people are used to communicating now wherever and whenever. Mm -hmm. And that goes for the analyst as well. Um, Analysts take their patients with them, as it were, to conferences in hotels, um, to home offices, to their um, consulting rooms outside their home, to kitchens, to living rooms, and, and of course, patients do the same. And so there is not the reliable, containing, uh, dependable repetition that we supply when a patient comes to our consulting room. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I I think one of the questions you ask critically is, um, should we change – our way of working in the way in which we have meaning should we actually agree to um, be on tap i kept writing on tap Mm -hmm. the analyst is on tap the analyst is in her pocket the analyst can be you know the fantasy that the the fantasy that there's no no separation. I mean, Winnicott mm-hmm. writes: incomplete adaptation to need makes objects real, right? Mm-hmm. The, Absolutely. Yeah. So yep. somehow, you know, with these screen relations, um, you know, what what is the what is the fate of of psychoanalysis, which very much so needs a beginning, you know, a a a birth and a death every mm-hmm. uh, every session. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that
0: because. Um, I don't know if you remember, but one of the patients that I interviewed Mm -hmm. called leaving. She said leaving um, the Skype session with the click of the mouse was like having a cesarean instead of a natural birth. You know, firstly, I think that what you're talking about is contained within a larger issue in culture, in our culture now, which is that we are always on and always connected and that as a culture, we're not learning to negotiate solitude. We're not learning to negotiate separation um, or frustration because nice. everything is instantaneous. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously these, these are things that people um, who are experts in the communications and technology field like Sherry Turkle and Nicholas Carr write mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. about. And because psychoanalysis is part of culture, This is, of course, happening within technologically mediated treatments as well. Um, The the patients that I interviewed um, talked a lot about the difficulty, for instance, that they felt in not moving in space to get to a session, that the instantaneousness of the connection, in fact, was um, problematic for them. Mm -hmm. And, And... the analysts also talked about the difficulty in, in fact, not digesting their sessions in the same way that, and the patients said the same that it it was, it was a, a difficult thing to remember to process when, the, con- the when the connection was simply made by a click of the mouse, and and in thinking about this, um, you know, obviously issues of separation of bearing separation. Of saying goodbye saying goodbye for ha- perhaps to a, your analyst or your patient who needs to move mm-hmm. um, and working through that move instead of hanging on to that person right. um, these are these are all issues that come to the fore um, but even more simply in terms of going back to the idea of the body um, when you don't move in space mm-hmm. uh, to get somewhere when you don't have that transition it actually affects I think, the experience of the session. And, and, and recently, um, the, the people who won the Nobel Prize for uh, Physiology and Medicine did some very interesting research right. in um, cells in the hippocampus that help you to navigate, to find your way through space, and how these, in fact, are being changed um, by people using GPSs, for instance. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and one of the things they found is that those cells are also involved in memory. Mm -hmm. So that as you move through space, or as you move your hand as you write, for instance, Mm -hmm. that that also activates cells, your memory cells, uh, your neural network in in the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I think that goes some way to explaining why we as analysts found it difficult to remember sessions and Mm -hmm. why the patients I talked to found it so hard to leave a session and not move
1: in space Mm -hmm. um, and digest that session
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right with just a little click Mm -hmm. and and you're gone and it's always a moment of waiting Uh, I always let the patient click first click off and say goodbye first. I mean, that's just, that's sort of, I've noticed that in myself, you know, and I was like, well, wow, that's so interesting as mm-hmm. a way to allow them to decide. Okay, and I'll say, okay, we're out of time. And then I wait for them to, you know, you hear that funny noise mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and and they're, they're gone first. On the rare occasion though, that I have clicked off first, you know, thinking I heard them click off, um, I, I shudder. Right. I'm like, oh boy, you know, I'm, I always see myself as I'm still in the room, the patient leaves me and comes back, right. They leave me and they come back. But I've, when I've shut off the, you know, the, when I've (laughs) shut off the the Skype or whatever first, I thought, oh my God, did the patient notice? Well, I have, no one's ever noticed, you know, it's like as if, I mean, if I had gotten up and said, okay, time to leave and push the patient more out of the room, I mean, Mm. it's, it's a, it's quite, quite strange. Um, we 're not we 're not thinking about it I guess, as a culture um, so we aren't it 's not surprising that our patients aren 't noticing if we hang up first yeah. yes
0: yeah. and and of course, when it 's not noticed, then there isn 't any possibility of discussing it mm-hmm. so you know what what could save that would be if it were grist for the mill but if if it 's impossible to actually put your finger on mm-hmm. and to discuss then it it, it can 't be. It can't be brought into the session. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the things that comes out in the book also is that, um, you know, perhaps we have a uh, via Skype, we have the death of uh, reverie, um, because uh, you point out in the book that without, um, and it's a quote, without focus attention, sense of using the screen, sense of presence cannot be maintained. So, so much for um, evenly hovering, you know, attention, mm-hmm. right? It's a, uh, you're zeroing in. Uh, to try and capture as much as you can from what the patient is is conveying. Um, and yet, I think it's Todd Essig you quote, says something along these lines. Um, and for people who don't know, Todd Essig also writes on some of these, um, some of this, this subject matter. And Dr. Isaacs-Russell and Essig are, are cl- I believe, uh, close, um, close colleagues. But I'm just thinking about... Um, you know, if we lose this free-floating uh, approach, and instead what we're gathering, according to Essig, I think is data. Mm-hmm. We're getting data on the patient. But data is does not an analysis make, right? Right. Um, you know, you're
0: gathering more information, mm-hmm. but but the it it does affect reverie. It's interesting because um in fact what What the informatics people say is that if you have if you have to concentrate with effort, that actually decreases your sense of presence. Mm-hmm. so that it's the effortlessness that increases your sense of presence, mm-hmm. even if it's the illusion of telepresence. And the fact is that, as one person I interviewed said she felt glued to the screen that there is a tremendous effort to concentrate because of of the less rich and less easy way of communicating. Mm -hmm. And that is the inverse of reverie, absolutely the opposite. And I think that if you think about it in terms of the way that Alan Shore thinks about right brain and left brain, Mm -hmm. that your right brain is is this much more global um, uh, perceiver, whereas your left brain is this narrowly focused Receiver And that is what we do when often, when we're using the screen, we're Mm -hmm. focusing in, which really takes away our opportunity for reverie, for having clinical intuition. Probably also one of the reasons why if you have to do it, you personally don't like using the the video of the screen. You prefer just using the audio.
1: Yeah, um, I was uh, thinking about, I think there's in the book maybe something about the analyst um, who is... um, Dressed from the waist up, but in, but below the waist, they're in their pajamas or something yes. like that. Right. Yes. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, I, and I've joked around like with, you know, interviewees on new books and psychoanalysis, like you can be in your pajamas cause we're, it's not video. No, he's going to see mm-hmm. you. Right. And, yes. and perhaps that's cause I do interviews. I tend to do them on a day when I'm not seeing patients. So I, you know, am am in my house and, and in my pajamas if I, if I want to be, or, or, you know, whatever it is, but, but then, you know, uh, the question arises: you know, the frame, the analytic frame, is we discuss, we discuss it as analysts. Is it's for the patient, right? It's for the patient. The frame is for the patient. Study their resistances. Blah 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 blah. But really, what we're seeing is that the analyst loses her frame. There's wh- what's the analyst's frame for for doing this work when we can work remotely?
0: Yes, I, and and that was one thing that we didn't anticipate when I was speaking with this peer group. Um, you know, we thought that we would be conducting our sessions as we always did. And we didn't. And, and and it was sort of like, you know, why do you climb the mountain? Because it's there. Well what why do you use Skype the way you do? Because you can. You, um, uh, and, and 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 as I did say in the book, I, I think there is something um a bit transgressive a bit sort of daring and, and pushing the boundaries for us when we do that. It is a tremendous labor. It's really hard to do the job we do, which is probably one of the reasons why we do it in 50-minute bites, because <laughs> you couldn't do it much longer than that at a time. And I think that we have a lot of uh, giving up of easy things. Um, our time, our schedules in our lives are, are very rigorous um and uh it's hard as as Winnicott said to be more reliable than you are in real life. Mm-hmm. And so, if you can wear your pajama bottoms or bring in your cup of tea or whatever um, during a session, I think that it's a bit of a breaking away from uh, a rebellion from the the very strict way that we have been taught. An experienced uh, psychoanalysis.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I really, I really see that. In fact, it's this I had a couple session this morning via Skype, and I was thinking very much, I don't oh, know how perfect you know that I have this session, and the only time we can work it out is when I have my computer and and I'm at home and. You know, because my office doesn't have Wi-Fi, blah, blah, blah. And nice. I was getting dressed and putting on my makeup, and which I do every morning before I go to work. I put on my makeup, you know, and <laughs> et cetera. But I'm doing that, and then I realize that I'm going to be on a screen. And having, you know, been sort of steeped in, in, in your text, um, and wouldn't you know it, the one member of this couple says to me, oh, wow, your makeup looks really great. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said, geez, you know, that is there, but there's something about it being on a screen, as if I'm on television, you know, yes. versus a patient commenting on, you know, how they see they you know they think we look that particular day. Um, I I was like, oh, she caught me. I was preparing for my my close up.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think there is a question, you know, about how it feels to be on the screen. Um, you know, are we are we actually are we preparing for a close up? Are we psychoanalysts simulating psychoanalysis by being <laughs> on the screen? And, and and I I do think that, um, that it's worth thinking about as one approaches um, using uh, something like Skype, using mediation for treatment, mm-hmm. uh, because it really changes it changes the feeling in the room.
1: Right. Right. Um, let's talk for a minute about, I was interested in the, uh, we may get sort of that the weird Skype eye contact, which is never eye contact, right? right. It's not, it's eye almost, it's, it's it's a person alone. I think you write, is this about, did you write about your daughter or is this a quote? About? It was Sherry Turkle's it was a quote. Kirkland.
0: She said that she talked to her daughter and that because you can't make eye contact, her daughter looked like she was a person alone. Mm-hmm.
1: So... there we are we're in front of the screen i mean you know we have a little box with ourselves on the bottom right or the top right Mm -hmm. or wherever it is so we can sort of watch ourselves as we watch the patient this is you know it's like a three ring circus Mm -hmm. of uh distraction (laughs) yes
0: it is um and uh you even though with some programs you can disable that Um, You can't help checking. You can't help seeing it for a moment before you disable it. And so you are very aware of how you look. Mm -hmm. And um, I I wrote in the book about how one never knows how this is being used, because it's not only our own awareness of how we may appear and the distraction of that, but um, one analyst told me the story of a patient who... It turned out for the first year of an analysis was looking at himself uh, as the big picture was talking to himself and and the analyst never knew that so again when you don't share an environment you really don't know what the other person is doing
1: right right that's that's an incredible story in the book actually when she when she finds that out it's like he's been looking at himself (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Here I was. I thought he was at least looking at me. Now, Mm -hmm. now what about... Okay, so patient is using the couch. You're on Skype. You know, all of my patients are using the couch if they're on Skype. And they they set up their computer. And Mm -hmm. um, the strange thing is, is, you know, my chair is behind the couch in my office. But in Skype, the patient often sets up the, you know, the camera to show me their profile as they lie down. Mm -hmm. I you know, I haven't given it much thought, but I'm like, well, this is just so strange. I, what am I seeing in watching this? And I, I, I don't know. I, I wanted to, to talk to you about, you know, we, we don't have, we, with Skype, we have the fantasy of eye contact In analysis. We often don't have much eye contact if the patient is on the couch through the bulk of the session. And yet there's a difference. Can you talk to us about what is that difference?
0: The difference between what happens, for instance, when you're seeing a patient who's on the couch via Skype mm-hmm. and, and also co-presently, the difference between that. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a tremendous difference because even though you don't have eye contact, mm-hmm. there are many, many um, ways of communicating when two bodies share a room together. Uh, that don't comprise eye contact, and that does not get communicated uh, via the screen. And so even if you're not having eye contact at that moment, and of course there is peripheral vision, and there you do see the patient when they come in and when they leave, um, you still are missing really quite nuanced uh, communication, uh, and some of which I think we haven't even charted yet. We don't actually know how this communication works. People have mentioned all sorts of psychobiological, um, uh, very very subtle things like pheromones, mm-hmm. um, and 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 none of this none of this is happening. So that when a patient uses a couch via the screen, I think it is it's a very different thing. Mm-hmm. It is a very different experience, you know. This idea that somehow, um, if you can see someone, or if you if you can see and hear someone, that that's enough, has been discussed uh, by a woman um, that I interviewed for my book, named Maria Solano, who is a trainee psychoanalyst and therefore has is a patient and and a therapist, and she is blind and she is emphatic. That being in the room with her uh, patients and with her analyst is quite different, in t- different in terms of her experience of presence, mm-hmm. um, than when she is on the telephone or on Skype. Yeah. Even though in both cases she can't see them. Right. Uh,
1: that's that's fascinating. Um...
0: You know the, the research that I told you about with the um, the navigation and mm-hmm. the the There's been an elaboration on that, which is fascinating. It's been done by some scientists at UCLA just recently. And um, they're doing it because they're really interested in perfecting virtual reality. And they're interested in how the brain perceives experiences in virtual reality. And what they did was they set up a, 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 a very immersive virtual environment, and the equivalent real environment, and they put rats in both, the real and the virtual environment. And what they found was that in the real environment, there was an increase in um, the neurons that were firing as they uh, maneuvered through the environment, but in the, in the uh, virtual environment, the rat, which looked exactly like the real room, the rats actually seemed to behave perfectly normally. They negotiated both environments exactly the same. But in the virtual world, the rats' neurons fired completely randomly as if they had no idea where the rat was. And although the neurons were highly active in Uh. the real world environment, more than half the neurons shut down in virtual space. And the reason i 'm bringing this up it, it is, and by the way, rats um, the way rats work in in terms of navigating space is very similar to human beings, which right. is why they use the rats but i 'm bringing this up because we don 't know how we perceive that which is around us we don 't have enough information yet, and so to deprive ourselves of that when we know that we work in a field which is based in relationship, mm-hmm. which is based in people being alongside people and which grows from the mother-infant relationship, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't know what happens when we separate them by a screen. I do know that mothers and infants can't function when separated by screens.
1: Right, right, right. What about, um, it just came to mind. I was thinking about uh, studies I'm sure have been done on people who, um, use a lot of pornography on the screen. And Mm. is there, you know, I don't know the, I don't know the research, but I believe that it's, it's out there. Right. So, you Mm
0: -hmm. know, and,
1: you know, I've treated a couple of patients who seem to be uh, sort of deadened their um, live with another human being um, sex life as they were using and and viewing more and more pornography on the screen. There was a Mm -hmm. And and I guess (laughs) I'm seeing that the oldest profession is prostitution and uh, psychoanalysis uh, sometimes bears a resemblance to it. um, I'm just just thinking about this, that, you know, what people do, people can have sex and orgasm, right? Looking at each other on the screen. There is something that happens in, you know, bodily, right? That does take place when people, you know, have uh, you know skype sex, right as you know mm-hmm. people talk about um so the there is the body comes alive and it can come alive in a certain way, but yet when it comes to the analytic process we, the body is not is not being you know since the analyst is not having sex with the patient right it's like the bot the patient's body is is gone um unattended to but i I think that it's i'd I'd be curious have you you know about any of the research on the use of pornography on the screen and the impact on?
0: Well, uh, Todd, Todd Essig has actually written some um, good stuff on that. Oh, yeah. and, and I guess what, what it makes me think about is, you know, when you have an orgasm, you know, why do you have an orgasm? And, and one of the things that's happening, even though sex could, can be fully interactive on the screen, is um, that two people are making this experience exclusive of each other. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that really brings to mind, um, again, the, this, this idea that Winnicott talks about, that unless the object is not protected... The subject never places the object outside, and can never do more than experience a kind of self-analysis using the analyst as a projection of a part of the self. And I would guess that that's what's happening in in um, a sexual encounter on the screen. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's just interesting to to think about that. What is what's lost? What is possible? Um, you raise an issue for psychoanalysis, for the profession of psychoanalysis, and I'm gonna read a quote of yours here. Um, they call it the McDonald's metaphor <laughs> in my notes. If we accept that technologically mediated treatment, this is you writing, is experimental and unproved with limitations as compared to co-present treatment, then it is akin to marketing, a fine dining experience. And because people want fast food, opening a McDonald's, because if you don't, someone else will. <laughs> um so so the question comes you know, comes to mind is this is a really old, an old fashioned binary question, but is it, you know, that everyone's what it, what makes something a psychoanalysis, but if it's done on the screen, is it a psychoanalysis? I mean, you know, it should, should, hmm. should analysts, instead of saying, okay, four times a week, you know, the IPA, the APA, whatever, I mean, all these different, you know, four times a week makes it an analysis, um, you know, use of the couch makes it an analysis. And I found myself wondering, um, at the end of the book, I was like, okay, maybe I should cancel all these Skype sessions. Cause I, I'm more convinced that this is, um, you know, <laughs> the, the devil's work, right. Than uh, then, doing what I in, most enjoy doing, which is working with the patient, um, uh, in the room um mm. I-, I wonder do you have any thoughts about should the should the profession be taking a stand
0: it's, that's a really good question i'm glad you've given me the opportunity to comment on it because yeah. you know i really i want to, to emphasize that Oh, i'm um, having
1: a technological problem hold on okay can you hear that yeah. no oh dear i hear it good hmm. I don't know what's causing it. This is <laughs> this is an example of what yes, can ha- yes. what can happen. Hold on, do, do you hear a noise? noise? Yeah, I do. It's like a um, oh, it's a strange noise, like a reverberation. Um, hold on. I don't, I don't know what it is. Well, I think we're we're gonna have to, gonna have to talk over it. This is just an example of what okay, you deal okay. with. Um, um,
0: I, I, since, I, <laughs> since I don't here, I don't know whether you're reordering it or, or not, not, it not or not, um, would, there would there be a virtual ring back?
1: back? There's some feedback. Hold on. Okay, just... okay. okay. Are you there? Are you there? It's You know what? It's giving us... Can you believe this? I can hear you thrice. It says, Are you there? Are you there? Are you there?
0: That's interesting.
1: That's interesting. Um, um, do, you do you want to want try to join? That? That? Oh dear! But why don't why don't you? An, we're almost done with the interview. So why don't you answer <laughs> the question? And you know, this is this is what we contend with. <laughs> right. Well,
0: I think what's really Much important. Better. Can you hear?
1: Oh yeah, perfect now.
0: Okay. I think what's really important is that I um, I, I actually do um, some treatment on Skype, and um, I. And I feel that what's really important is not that this is the devil's work. I, I'm not saying that at all, but that we must have a dialogue about it. Mm-hmm. And that if we are going to use technology to help us in a positive way, rather than letting us it run us, mm-hmm. um, that we need to be really clear about the gains and losses in using technology so there are some times when being able to use Skype for treatment is invaluable, when someone is without any other form of treatment, when yeah. someone is ill for a long time and needs treatment, um, when someone does have to travel and so sees you in person some of the time, um, which uh, has lots of implications in terms of memory and refreshing memory. Mm-hmm. So... so I think what's really important is that we need to keep a dialogue going about the gains and the losses rather than sleepwalking into using technology. And, you know, when we talk about the McDonald's idea, there is a huge economic incentive to use technology. It's cheaper. You can have a bigger network of patients, a catchment area that way. You don't necessarily have to have an overhead of your office And I think we really need to think about that. And I just want to add that what I'm very interested in is that when I have spoken about this in a very balanced way, inviting dialogue, and uh, Sherry Turkle told me this was her experience speaking at APSA uh, recently as a keynote speaker as well. The, The subject engenders really vehement response from psychoanalysts and psychotherapists and I'm really interested in that. I'm interested in why the dialogue about the gains and the losses Mm -hmm. and the particular research that's already been done is responded to as if people are putting their hands over their ears and saying no 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 no, I'm not listening to you.
1: I don't like what I'm hearing so Mm -hmm. I'm not hearing it
0: right. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm saying is No, I'm not saying it's the devil's work. I think that it can be very useful at times. But I also think that we need to know how it affects the way we practice. We need to know how it affects our patients. And importantly, we need to let our patients know that it's an experimental medium Mm -hmm. and that this has implications
1: for informed consent. No doubt. Um, I would also add to that, and what is the impact on the analyst? Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and and what would it, what does it mean to, for those analysts who, you know, there are those that do prefer to work this way, right? There Mm -hmm. is a, perhaps it gives them a kind of a coating or a veneer of, you know, they can't be um, killed off
0: uh, Mm -hmm. in effigy.
1: So it does provide a certain amount of of insulation. um, And freedom. Yeah, and freedom, right, to Mm. be in your PJs. Uh Mm. Or or to travel,
0: you know, to be, to live in different places. And, and that, you know, that's something that simply needs to be discussed. It right. needs to be thought about. Right. Um, and, and until we can do that, what's going to happen is that technology is going to be leading us rather than our using technology um, in, in a way that actually truly benefits us rather than diminishes mm-hmm. and uh, degrades our relationships in all forms, whether it's you know, using um, in treatment or communicating with our loved ones whatever.
1: Right. Right. I mean, the medium is, is the message. Um, you know, there is human agency and what, what is it? We created this, it satisfies something in us, but, and it does something to us, but also, you know, just like early television research or like, think about the Frankfurt school, you know, and the idea that, you know, this bad jazz from Columbia records is going to ruin our ability to appreciate good jazz. Mm, mm. The answer as as you're saying is, definitely uh much more complicated than uh you know what theodore adorno thought about jazz i mean his his worst essay ever i think but you know it's it's it it is it is much more complicated when i say it's the devil's work it's just because i i you know tend toward hyperbole it's <laughs> but
0: but you know there are people who don't tend to, to, toward hyperbole who you know on both sides are are very extreme and i think that mm-hmm. that you know Perhaps it's worth everybody talking rather than feeling too um, feeling it's impossible to have a dialogue
1: right right, mm-hmm. right, right, and the degree to which psychoanalysts feel themselves under threat and I'll, mm. i 'll do anything I can to get patients and you know listen i mean we you know we create we you know you make yourself a little more scarce and you really uh increase desire
0: my stepson, who is so. Uh, wired in and so adept at using all of his um, uh, technology, said to me very sweetly a few weeks ago, you know, he said, if everybody is going to start using technology for treatment, you know what's going to happen? Being in the same room with someone is going to become so much more valuable. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I, I, think he, I think he makes... He makes a good point that uh, many analysts, uh, you know, might need to hear in order to tolerate um, thinking through uh, the entirety of the the implications of using technology uh, for treatment. So we're going to have to stop for today. This has been a delight. And um, I think uh, many people are going to be um, you know, fascinated by uh, by the points um, that were raised today and that are further elaborated in the book. So I wanted to thank you for taking the time uh, to talk with us at New Books and Psychoanalysis.
0: Thank you, Tracy. It yeah. was a pleasure.
1: Yeah. And um, to all the listeners, um, stay tuned. Uh, I believe... Uh, Christopher Bolas's book uh, will be our, perhaps, next interview. Uh, It's on um, schizophrenia and his his thoughts about that. So stay tuned, and um, thanks to all for listening. Bye-bye.